Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, pop culture, uh, technology, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And with me, as always, is Tim Nudd, our creative editor. Tim, thanks for joining us again. Thanks a lot for having me. And also, happy to welcome back, it's been quite a while, uh, Michael Berge, our Director of Editorial Partnerships and uh, a frequent editor on the print edition of Adweek and on the site. Uh, Great to have you back, Michael. Thanks for having me back. And also back again, I think you've been on pretty recently, uh, is Katie Richards, our staff writer covering the agency world. Uh, Welcome back, Katie. Thanks for having me back. All right, we got a lot to talk about today. There's been uh, lots of news, a big issue in the magazine this week that we want to talk about. Uh, so let's see what we've got on deck for today's uh, podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, the biggest star on YouTube is in some hot water uh, as we speak. Uh, so we'll be talking about what happened there and some of the repercussions. Uh, we've got, uh, speaking of hot water, Under Armour, one of the most celebrated marketing brands these days, uh, had a bit of a of a kind of turmoil within its own ranks of celebrity endorsers. And we're going to talk about what happened there. Uh, As many will probably be able to guess, it was political, like all things these days. Uh, And speaking of politics, we're going to talk about some fun stuff that John Oliver is doing to try to cut through uh, the advertising clutter on uh, the news networks. And we're going to talk about Playboy and what's up there. But then most importantly, we're going to uh, look at this year's picks for Adweek's Media Agencies of the Year. Uh, we recognize them in three categories, so we're going to be talking about what those categories are, who won, and why we picked them. But first, the news. So PewDiePie, for those who don't know, is uh, one of the, I mean, not one of the biggest. He is the biggest star on YouTube, uh, really surpasses any other channel, any other influencer. I believe he's uh, at about 53 million subscribers uh, and really just is is the biggest name, even though, uh, you know, a lot of people above a certain age probably don't know who he is. Uh, he definitely has the ear of uh, most of the, the uh, much of the gaming community. And then uh, he's become this kind of 
uh, global star in the, in the video space. Uh, this week, uh, actually just yesterday, the day before we record this, he was dropped uh, by Disney's Maker Studios. Uh, he is one of their, obviously, uh, biggest stars. Uh, but he's always had a very brash sense of humor uh, and approach and a lot of vulgarity, uh, but he apparently crossed a line uh, that some of them were not happy with by making jokes about the Holocaust. Uh, he had made three recent videos that included references to Hitler, to the Holocaust. Uh, you know, I, I it's hard to uh, parse out things like anti-Semitism versus jokes that are attempting to make light of something like that. Uh, I, I don't know if it's important to make a distinction like that, but either way, it uh, definitely made Maker Studios uncomfortable. It made Google uncomfortable. They uh, removed some of the ads uh, around PewDiePie's channel. Uh, he is, uh, you know, advertisers pay a premium uh, to be around his content. Uh, I guess my question for the panel is, you know, should this even be a surprise? This is kind of like when stand-up comedians get in trouble for being controversial. I mean, they've always been controversial. They've always said really, uh, thing, you know, offensive or gross things because it's part of their shtick. I would say PewDiePie has always been uh, pretty pretty uh, gross to a, a certain audience that's not his kind of core listenership. Uh, you know, Katie, I guess I'll start with you. Uh, you know, have you watched PewDiePie's videos before? And, and do you think brands should have been surprised that he would you know, take this approach to, to humor? I have not watched his videos before. I am obviously familiar with him because he's such a big name in that community. And, you know, I know he obviously makes quite a bit of money uh, working with brands. But, I mean, I I think it's a bit of a surprise. Obviously, you know, he's relatively young. Um, everyone makes mistakes. But I feel like it's kind of common sense that you don't, make jokes about certain topics and I think this is one of those things where you just you got to be really careful either you need to know what you're doing or just don't do it. Berkey do you think that brands are going to start rethinking kind of how it feels like they've been pretty laissez-faire with uh, influencers they've basically said hey you know you do your thing and your audience loves you for a reason and we'll throw ad dollars behind it uh, and with these content studios like maker studios uh, that Disney had bought and has now dropped PewDiePie, uh, I feel they've kind of been the same way, where it's like, hey, we're not here to tell you what to do. But now they kind of are sending a warning shot across the bow. Uh, what what do you think is going to happen in terms of these kind of more controversial influencers and how brands interact with them moving forward? Well, I definitely think those that are more contro controversial are going to probably get uh, examined a little bit more closely, perhaps even some of these content studios going back through uh, the archive of material, just because this kind of situation that gets a lot of headlines that we've seen everywhere today and yesterday is just going to make all of them think, ooh, we don't, we don't want to get in that same kind of trouble. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of these influencers like PewDiePie, though they may be a little bit kind of, you know, use dirty words or whatever, having looked at some of the quote-unquote offensive videos uh, of his you know, he any anytime you're making a joke about death to all Jews, it's just I don't think it's going to go over well. So I think he might be a, a a bit of an outlier. But yes, I do think a lot of the studios that are that are you know working with some of these influencers are going to have to go check through and make sure that there isn't uh, you know a landmine sitting in uh, among that material. 
Yeah, and, and seeing how they try to draw that line. Like, do you tell your influencers, oh, we'd love to support you as long as you never mention the Holocaust, <laughs> you know, in a funny way. Like, how do you how do you draw those uh, very specific lines? So we've got a story up today from Sammy Main, our digital uh, media writer. Uh, so you can check out adweek.com to see. She talked to a few uh, people within that industry with influencer marketing. And basically, you can tell that they're kind of saying, well, you know, the, it's you don't necessarily want to pull all your ad dollars out of these things because one or two videos might be controversial. Uh, but you certainly want to be aware of who you're advertising around. I mean, we saw this in, in a different way, not not to relate PewDiePie and Breitbart, uh, but we saw a similar thing where brands were much more hypersensitive to Breitbart and their advertisements appearing on that site. Uh, around the election season and after the election. Uh, and so, I don't know, the, when you have someone on the size of PewDiePie uh, having a, an issue like this in kind of the national and global spotlight, it's certainly going to make this issue percolate up to the top. So we will see in the coming uh, days and weeks what happens there. So keep an eye on our coverage on adweek.com for that. Uh, one that's a little more fun uh, uh, is uh, John Oliver. So obviously with uh, last week tonight, uh, his his uh, HBO show, he has been picking on Trump uh, pretty uh, aggressively and in a really beautifully informed way for months. And he admits that he's kind of become a bit of a of a recurring, you know, that, that it feels like he's been saying the same things over and over again. But he has certainly been really pressing Trump about the truth and about understanding uh, more about the reality of the world and the politics he's covering. He had a uh, pretty funny uh, and pretty, pretty actually brilliant uh, advertising approach that he unveiled the other day where he is going to start replacing ads on morning uh, news shows that we all know Trump watches because he's been very clear about watching those shows, and he's going to start replacing some of the ads with um, the uh, kind of parody versions of the ads that actually inform Trump about global policy or about uh, kind of how the presidency works or the name of one of his own kids. <laughs> he's trying to cover as much ground as he can. Uh, Tim, tell us about the ads that he's that he's kind of parodying with this approach. Well, uh, the very, we've only seen one, first of all, and it was a, a parody of this catheter cowboy spot, which was a real spot. I, I think it's from, uh, I don't know how long ago it's from, a few years ago, and it's gotten you know a fair amount of views on YouTube. I mean, it's just absurd. That's that's why John Oliver was was drawn to it, obviously. So it's a it's a parody of this ca catheter cowboy ad, and then in the middle of it, um, the, you know, the, the, they cast a new ca catheter cowboy guy in this commercial, and suddenly he starts talking about uh, nuclear weapons, and, and uh, John Oliver is clearly trying to explain uh, things about the nuclear threat that uh, that he, he believes Trump has no idea about. And, and of course, the, the delightful thing here is that these ads are actually running uh, not in a, a comedic environment, but just, you know, I think they ran on all three uh, of the major political cable networks. So they were uh, during Morning Joe on MSNBC, uh, during New Day on CNN, and during Fox and Friends on Fox News. So suddenly you're watching those ads and, and this uh, sort of parody ad comes on from John Oliver. Uh, explaining these political things. I just love the, the hacking of, of, you know, I think it was just in the D.C. area, so the hacking of uh, cable news in those D.C. areas in, in the morning is just so, so fun. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually something that several um, companies have done. It's not just John Oliver doing this. I think there was a, we wrote it, a, Christina Monlos uh, wrote an ad of the day for us a week or two ago 
uh, where a veterans group who was upset with Trump also sort of did a media buy specifically on one of those morning shows. So, you know, Trump's such a masterful kind of media manipulator. It's sort of funny to see the tables turned and, and see other people kind of manipulating the media to get to him in this way. It's really fun to picture. It's like a sci-fi movie where people are like watching TV and all of a sudden the TV starts talking directly to them. You know, it's, that's what I picture is him just <laughs> right. sitting there trying to enjoy his morning watching the cable news. And all of a sudden uh, the ad is literally talking to him. Uh, Bergy, do you think this is actually going to get through to him or how, how do you think Trump is going to respond if this becomes a pretty frequent tactic? I would be surprised if Trump actually responds to it because it, it almost gives John John Oliver some some ground or some some extra credence that I think all of us uh, would already give John Oliver some credence for the the great research that goes into his programming and I don't think Trump wants to legitimize him that way so I doubt Trump would actually acknowledge it but you know with with his Twitter habits uh, who knows what he's going to say I wonder if uh, Trump uh, actually watches the commercials you know when he's watching the news. Or if it goes to commercial, no, he probably gets his work do. done during the commercials. Isn't he like <laughs> tweeting during the commercials? Probably? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, and I, and I like that the origin, I, I believe the origin of this was the clip that shows him on Air Force One talking to reporters. And while he's talking to them, an ad for a carpet warehouse or whatever is just blasting at full volume from Fox News. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that was kind of there. It seemed like that was the inspiration for, hey, if he has these things blasting at full at full volume, let's, uh, you know, let's put our own messaging in there so that he's kind of subjected to it. Um well, we'll see. I, I have a feeling, to Tim's point, that this is going to become a pretty frequent uh, tactic. Uh, and you know, hey, good for the morning news shows and networks, I guess, because they're gonna they're gonna uh, probably have a backlog of people waiting to get in those ad slots. And, and I mean, in general, that's just kind of a fascinating thing to think about. If this becomes the place you know you can get the ear of the president, uh, yeah, it's going to become the hottest ad slot in television, pretty much. That's another way that Trump can revive the economy by taking credit for uh, bringing advertising back. Yeah, he certainly, uh, in several ways, has benefited the ad industry. Uh, I, I don't think quite in the ways uh, that his business growth plans had intended. Um, but let's uh, let's move on to another uh, name in the news this week, which is Playboy. So uh, some of you may remember that uh, Playboy has on a, on their website has been pursuing kind of a not uh, a excuse me a safe for work approach, um, meaning not about nudity, because they know you can get nudity wherever you want on the internet. Uh, instead, they went for more of a kind of a feminist approach and a really modern vibe. They hired a lot of women to write for the site. And so that content was very successful. It boosted their traffic, you know, something like 200 and something percent. Uh, but then they tried uh, conveying this approach to the print edition. So they took nudity out of the print edition uh, I have to admit, I've not. I've seen the. I, I remember seeing the first cover uh, that lacked nudity. It was kind of a Snapchat style uh, cover. Looked really good, but um, I've, I've been kind of curious every once in a while when I think about it. I was like, oh, I wonder how that's going for them. And we we ran a piece uh, from Emma Basilian, our media writer at the time, who basically she wrote saying that uh, this is kind of. Uh, a, a bit of a Hail Mary for Playboy, you know, if they can't exist with, or can they exist without nudity? Uh, well, it turns out they cannot. Uh, they've basically come out and said, oh, okay, okay, we're going to bring uh, nudity back. Uh, they rolled out a, a philosophy, a new Playboy philosophy about how they want to be more than entertainment, but at the same time, they, you know, so they want to be thought-provoking, but they also want to bring back nudity. They don't want there to be shame in nudity, uh, which is honestly a pretty, uh, you know, kind of a, a valid point uh, that you shouldn't necessarily like 
shun nudity because I mean even normal magazines will run nude, uh, nude photos, uh, but. Uh, on the bigger scheme, so while it's understandable why they made some of these choices uh, to return to nudity, they say that they won't have crotch shots, I guess. is No no full frontal is the line they're drawing. <laughs> but, uh, th- you know, it just reopened this question of can Playboy exist? Will this brand continue to exist uh, without it? Katie, wh- what do you think is going to happen to th- that Playboy brand if they just, you know, keep kind of seeming like they're kind of going all over the map? Um, I think, you know, if they are finding that, you know, they tried something new and it didn't work, um, going back to what has worked for them or some version of that, I think is the best move that they can possibly make. Um, I, you know, I'm probably not the best person to speak to on this particular magazine, but that would just be my logical thinking is that, you know, obviously they were selling magazines when they were doing it the original way. So, they might as well go back to that and see, you know, see what it takes and see if they can win some of those readers back. Well, in fairness, I would I would bet that you have probably read as many issues of Playboy in the last 20 years as any of the rest of us have. <laughs> so, I don't know if any of us are really in a perfect place to talk about the strategy of Playboy. Uh, but Bergy as a brand, they've obviously uh, been around a, a very long time and the meaning of the Playboy brand has changed a lot yeah. uh, from this kind of old school social clubs vibe uh, to, uh, you know, to whatever it is now, which is really hard to pin down. Uh, You know, what's your outlook for the kind of the life, the longevity at this point of the brand? Well, it's funny. It it has such brand value given the the length of time it's been around. And, you know, kind of all of us who who are in the working world these days have known it since we were children, even if we don't interact with it as much as we used to. I think there's some value for them to try to keep that brand name alive. I personally question whether it's a smart move to return to kind of nudity or semi-nudity in the magazine because I don't think that's necessarily going to bring back readers that may have moved on and are finding their content in other places, whether it's, you know, the intellectual content that they have or the nudity itself. So I, I would think Playboy is better served in branching out that brand in other ways more than it already has uh, and and see if that works just because, I'm I, you know, uh, having partially nude people and women in the magazine it certainly isn't going to make me pick up uh, Playboy and read it again. And it is fascinating if you go to like a Rite Aid or or you know a Dwayne Reed, you will see there there's there's weird Playboy products out there. There's like Playboy aftershave and <laughs> right. cologne and all this stuff. And and part of me just wonders like I don't even know what that means. You know what I you know I don't even know what I'm supposed to picture that smelling like um, because the brand just kind of doesn't. Uh, have an identity and and it's clear you know so so Hugh Hefner's son um, which uh, Cooper Cooper Hefner uh, is the one who is leading this uh, he's the one who summarized it uh, in in this introduction to their new philosophy and he admits that he and his dad have very different worldviews even though they have a lot in common that they are very different guys and so I feel like it is a uh, you know as a media entity it is definitely changing um, but it's in this period where I just don't quite understand what they want to stand for, and I don't think they really know. So even though they're trying to lay out a philosophy, I think time will tell uh, whether that's enough to keep their brand really relevant, uh, which is the question at this point. Uh, well, moving on to uh, one of the other big names uh, in branding and marketing, uh, Under Armour. So Under Armour is 
obviously one of the most respected names as a brand uh, in the worlds of advertising and endorsement and sports and apparel. Uh, they've obviously been a massive player uh, and challenger brand in their space. And a lot of their marketing success has been owed to their uh, celebrity tie-ins, their endorsers, uh, and the work that they've done with uh, Droga5. Uh, we featured their uh, piece with Michael Phelps as our ad of the year. Uh, that caliber of work that they do with Under Armour was a, a big part of what made Droga5 our agency of the year. Uh, and this past week, uh, that kind of uh, there was a bit of a schism in those ranks. So several of the big stars that Under Armour works with, Misty Copeland, uh, the the uh, primary dancer in uh, in the American Ballet Company, uh, she or the American Ballet Theater, uh, she, Steph Curry, uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Uh, all basically came out in different uh, levels of, of opposition to uh, Kevin Plank, the CEO of Under Armour, had made comments that were uh, basically pro-Trump. You know, he called him an asset uh, to the business community. Uh, he talked about, it, it basically just kind of gushed about his positive opinions about Trump and uh, in an interview with CNBC, and that was quickly followed by some backlash uh, from uh, across Twitter and then eventually from some of these celebrities. Misty Copeland wrote a relatively long uh, Instagram post about it, and then The Rock wrote an even longer Instagram post about it, uh, and Steph Curry just made one snide comment where someone asked him, you know, do you agree that Trump is an asset? And he said, I agree if you take the ET off asset. Uh, so <laughs> this uh, clearly had an impact. Um, but Katie, why don't you tell us a bit? So you covered this. You reached out to Droga5. Uh, t tell us about David Droga, the, the founder and uh, of Droga5. What was his response to this? Um, yeah, he was, so he was clearly very um, passionate about what was going on here because the relationship that he has with Under Armour and the relationship he has with Kevin Plank is so important to him and it's kind of a big part of their business. So he, um, you know, he and I spoke via email and he sent me this enormously long um, just list of thoughts that he had about it and he really took the side that, you know, Under Armour is a business that stands for equality and diversity. And his point of view is really that Kevin Plank, you know, doesn't necessarily agree with Donald Trump. His comments, he thinks, were taken, um, you know, kind of blown out of proportion, I guess. And he feels that, you know, Kevin was treated a bit unfairly uh, by the media, but he is fully supportive of Under Armour. And, you know, you I don't think you're going to see any change in that relationship anytime soon. Uh, Tim, you have covered this brand, uh, this agency, and their work with celebrities uh, quite a bit, probably more than all of us. Uh, what's your take on, on Kevin Plank? And, and after you read these comments and how he responded, which I guess we should go ahead and say that uh, the next day, uh, Under Armour put out a statement against uh, the executive order on the travel ban. Uh, they came out against it. Uh, I can uh, We can talk about that statement a little more in a second, uh, but it certainly wasn't a complete condemnation of Trump in any way, uh, but it did try to create some distance. But what was your take on all this? Well, you know, I think what this whole episode shows is really how Trump is just like kryptonite for any brand that even tries to say anything remotely positive about the guy. You know, I think I think what, what Plank was trying to do essentially was just say, well, he's probably going to be good for business in certain ways. You know, that had nothing to do with the immigration ban or, or other policies. But, but, you know, as soon as you say anything positive about Trump at all, um, 
you know, you, you, you get lumped in with uh, anyone who supports the, the, the travel ban and things like that. So it's very difficult for anyone to parse different, different policies of Trump's and support one but not the other. Uh, because, you know, like I said, any, any, any positive comments about Trump are going to immediately provoke a backlash. And it happened here with, you know, it happened here with Under Armour, uh, regardless of what David Droga said, um, you know, Plank definitely was, was talking positively about Trump. And you just can't do that and expect to get away with it today, you know, because you are going to be, it's very difficult to be pro-business uh, and support Trump in that sense. And, and but get out from under the shadow of everything else Trump has been talking about, which so many people find to be repugnant. So, I think that's the lesson for brands: is that you can't uh, you can't say nice things about Trump uh, or about certain parts of Trump's policies and expect to, to to get off scot free in terms of the other policies. Yeah, let's just for the the sake of you know transparency, let's just go ahead and let people listen to the comments. Uh, it's not a very long segment of uh, Plank's interview with CNBC, so you can hear exactly what he had to say about Trump. Let me switch gears and talk a little bit about President Trump, because you were in the room with the president a couple weeks back with a number of other CEOs. First off, your impression of the man himself in that in that context. Yeah, uh, I think he's highly passionate. Um, he definitely it's, you know, to have such a pro-business um, president is something that's a real asset for this country. I think people should really grab that opportunity. He loves to build. I don't think there's any surprises here, you know, when you look at the president. So he wants to build things and he wants to make bold decisions and he wants to be decisive. And I'm a big fan of, of people that operate in the world of publish and iterate, you know, versus, you know, think, 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 think. So there's a lot that I respect there. Um, but, you know, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of people that, uh, a lot of constituencies in the United States of America. Um, there's a lot of things that are issues that are coming up that are very serious, they're very deep. Uh, they're not quite as simple as, um, uh, going to be solved in just a day or, or two or, or one piece of legislation. So I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that debate. I'm glad America's, you know, engaging it. So, so those comments, uh, once they really started getting out uh, and circulating through Twitter and through, uh, you know, social media, uh, they sparked Misty Copeland uh, to, so Steph Curry had made his comment, but Misty wrote a, a longer post uh, saying she has always appreciated the great support uh, and platform that Under Armour has given me to represent my community, gender, and career on the world stage. However, I strongly disagree with Kevin Plank's recent comments in support of Trump as recently reported. Those of you who have supported and followed my career know that the one topic I've never backed away from speaking openly about is the importance of diversity and inclusion. And she goes on from there. So you can look up uh, adweek.com and look for Under Armour's star endorsers, um, and uh, you will find our, our piece on that. I mean, that's the other thing here, too, that's really interesting is, is you know, the power that these athletes have. You know, they're endorsers, yeah, but they don't always necessarily toe the company line, and they have enormous social reach, and they can they can broadcast their misgivings about, about the company that they're endorsing um, and reach millions of people. You know, uh, say, you know, I, re I reached out to Michael Phelps' people. They didn't uh, have a comment on this particularly. I don't think they wanted to wade into it, but... Um, all these folks that are under contract with Under Armour can say whatever they like about the brand, uh, and the brand needs them as much as, as they need the brand. And so that's that's another interesting thing about how this played out was the power of social to really spur the, the company to, 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 to do an about face and, and, and release a statement saying, hey, we don't we don't believe in everything Trump believes in. You know what our CEO was saying was was very narrowly related to this, uh, and we are a values based company. And so, you know, I think the pushback from the endorsers is really what uh, what caused this to move along, uh, to, you know, to the not an apology, but to a clarification, at least for from from the brand. 
Yeah, and and the, the, like, as I mentioned, the response the next day, uh, the statement that Under Armour put out, was not uh, quite what probably those celebrities were hoping for, um, but it, it certainly addressed some of that. It did come out against the travel ban. Uh, but, you know, he's, it says things like, we engage in policy, not politics. We believe in advocating for fair trade, an inclusive immigration policy that welcomes the best and brightest and those seeking opportunity in the great tradition of our country and tax reforms that drives hiring to create new jobs. So, I mean, they, they are defending his comments in a way, uh, but at the same time then kind of saying, but we are against the travel ban. Uh, and so it was, again, not quite the... Uh, any sort of mea culpa, but uh, an interesting uh, gesture on, on their part. Uh, so definitely check it out. It's worth checking out uh, David Droga's uh, kind of lengthy response uh, at the end of Katie's article on that. And uh, you can learn more on adweek.com. Well, that is a lot of news that we had to cover today. Uh, and now we want to move on to my favorite part of the show each week, where Tim uh, walks us through the ads that are actually worth taking the time to sit down and enjoy. Uh, and they are called Ads Worth Watching. So this is kind of interesting timing, you know, considering UA uh, had these problems during the week, uh, it was pretty good timing for Nike, which is obviously the the number one sportswear brand uh, that, that Under Armour is chasing. Uh, they released a spot called Equality, uh, a 90-second ad from Wyden and Kennedy. It aired during the Grammys, and it was this really poetic black-and-white ad with uh, tons of star power. You had LeBron James, Serena Williams, Kevin Durant. Uh, Gabby Douglas, Victor Cruz, uh, lots of stars in it. It was voiced by Michael B. Jordan, the actor. And, you know, it was a celebration of uh, of equality on the court and a plea for equality off the court. So, you know, it uses sports as a metaphor, you know, for what the real world should look like. Uh, you know, in sports, you know, the ad says uh, people are judged by their actions, not by the way they look. And, you know, it kind of called for the same to be true, you know, outside the lines of sporting. And this is you know, a pretty cool metaphor, and it's one that the NFL actually used uh, on the Super Bowl. You guys probably remember the spot from translation called Inside These Lines, which, uh, you know, appeared to be talking about, um, you know, sporting sporting events. But then as it pulled back at the end, you saw that the, the lines that the that they were drawing on the field was actually a map of America, and it was calling for, for uh, you know, for people to get along in, in the country as well, you know, the way that they do in sports. And, you know, I thought it was a, it was a really great, you know, a really great ad from, from Widening Kennedy, the new Nike one, because um, sports in a way, you know, really is like the most pro- high profile and pure meritocracy that we have in this country. You know, it's, it's all about actions and not about words or the way people look or what they believe. Um, so, you know, I thought the ad was great. You know, the only slight quibble I had, I thought some of the copy was maybe a little tortured. You know, one of the lines was worth should outshine color. And I thought that was a little, I don't know, it just didn't, uh, a few lines in the spot didn't really, to me, have that uh, really outstanding Widening Kennedy copywriting that we all know so well. Um, But overall, I thought it was a great message and really perfectly timed, um, great venue to run it on the Grammys like that, and a metaphor that really was perfectly apt, you know, for a sports marketer to come out with. Yeah, to me, that seemed very much the, the other side of the coin of this Under Armour issue, that we were just talking about before, you know, it, it, it completely showcases the power of athletes to, uh, to, to kind of convey a message that perhaps others can't quite convey as effectively, whether it's Kevin Plank or other people. And uh, I thought that ad really encapsulated the, the, the power of the athlete to take a, tr- a strong stand on issues that, that are very important and being bandied about in our culture. 
yeah, maybe we could uh, listen to a little bit of it because it is it is uh, the lines are pretty neat and they're delivered uh, pretty pretty wonderfully by Michael B. Jordan. Is this the land history promise? Here, within these lines, on this concrete court, this patch of turf. Here, you're defined by your actions. Not your looks or beliefs. Equality should have no boundaries. So yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it's like, you know, Under Armour has this issue where the brand itself seems to be you know, in a bit of hot water and the athletes are kind of telling the brand what to do. And then Nike swoops in on the Grammys with, you know, this is what our brand believes. And it was in a sense, you know, it was very heartfelt, but in a sense it was also pretty opportunistic, at least the way it played out. Well, and, and this was not Nike's first uh, statement against Trump's policies. You know, they had, they were one of the bigger, larger brands to come out early against uh, the immigration ban. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, maybe this sounds petty, but I just feel like Nike must just be so happy to have seen Under Armour stumble like that in the public limelight on an issue that's this uh, central and vital uh, to their, you know, to their customer base and to those audiences and, and to their brand. Uh, so, you know, to see their marketing take a hit just as, uh, you know, they're finishing this equality spot and getting it ready to air during the Grammys, which also had some, you know, as always, some heated discussion of race uh, in the in the selection of Adele over Beyonce. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, it's an interesting time. That's been a, you know, one of the hottest rivalries in the marketing space uh, for the last few years. And it really does feel like it's heating up and Nike is is finally uh, kind of resecuring their their reign in a, in a certain way. But we shall see. Uh, so what else do you have for us this week? Well, we, we are recording this on Valentine's Day. So and the second pick here is. It's a product, actually, not an ad, and it might be in. It might belong in our ads, not worth watching, or, or in this case, products <laughs> not worth buying. Uh, it's definitely kind of weird and off-putting, but it's also gotten huge PR value this week and, and has some comedic value as well. And that is, uh, Burger King uh, in Israel came out with an adults-only meal for Valentine's Day. So, um, in fact, as we speak, um, you can, it's after six in Israel, so you could anyone there today could um, could go to Burger King and get. Uh, a meal that contains two Whoppers, two orders of fries, two beers, and uh, apparently a, a, what's described as a romantic toy. Um, so I, I just thought this was so odd. Like when the email came in and I saw what they were pitching, I couldn't. I thought it was a joke. I was like, this surely has to be a joke. Uh, but no, it's you know it's not April Fools yet. So um, really, really strange for a fast food company to kind of get into the sex toy marketing. <laughs> Uh, as, you know, as jokey as it was, it's a, it's an actual thing. Like, it's not really a joke. It's kind of a joke. I don't know. This whole thing, I mean, people thought it was hilarious, though. Like, it's been shared a lot, and people are talking about it a lot, which I guess is a win for Burger King. Um, can't imagine them actually doing this in, in, in the United States. I find it odd that they're doing it in Israel. Um, I don't know. What did you guys think of this? Well, I just hope they don't confuse them with the kids' meals. Yeah. really happy meal i just think it's so twisted that it's like based off of a kid's meal where you get like a cute little toy it's just so messed up it is really weird you know burger king's actually been um doing a few things like this like i'm trying to remember what country it was it might have been in brazil this month where they they have a thing called a senior meal 
where they, um, again, it's like two Whoppers, and but one of the meals you pay for uh, if you're a senior citizen, and then the second meal is free if, if like a younger companion has come with you to like hang out with you if you're if you're living by yourself or whatever. So Burger King is definitely into these sort of strange uh, extensions of the of the um, sort of combo meal lately. This one I found though, I mean, I don't know. The adults only meal is just a, little, a step too far. I, I think they need to bring back the the king from the Crispin Porter Bogusky days. Uh, <laughs> he would be just perfect to promote. Eerily, silently standing there with his grinning mask, just holding out this adult toy for oh, you. God. That would be the entire ad. It would just be thirty <laughs> seconds of that with like no movement whatsoever, except oh, maybe Lord. he turns it on at the end. Um, <laughs> all right, let's not follow that train of thought any, any deeper. Uh, and speaking speaking of Crispin Porter, <laughs> you actually have uh, a new one of their spots for us. Uh, yes, this week. Um, yeah. CPMB has uh, released the latest round of ads in their. A humorous campaign for Let Go, which is this marketplace app where you sell your stuff. Um, this campaign actually started, I think it was 2015, and, and it's all about people who can't let go of their old useless possessions that are hanging around the house. And the twist in the campaign and in the, the ads themselves um, is that hanging on to these possessions is actually putting people in physical danger. And so the humor really is that there's never been a better time to let go of these things. And there's a famous ad, uh, I think it was released at the end of 2015, where uh, the other thing is the characters are very blasé about their situations in the ads. So the, the launch spot, I believe it was, from a couple of years ago, there was a guy kind of hanging by one hand off the end of an overturned semi-truck, and the semi-truck is hanging off the edge of a cliff, and the guy's holding a bowling ball, and he's refusing to let it go. And it's unclear kind of what's, you know, what's happened to cause this, to, you know, this situation. Um, but his buddy nearby ends up taking a snap of the photo and then some guy hiking up the, the side of the mountain buys the thing. So it's, it's more funny to watch the ads than to listen to me talk about them. But the new ones are, are, are very funny. There's, um, one of them takes place in a tornado where a daughter is trying to get her mom to, to let go of this old antique rocking horse that she has. Uh, there's another one where an avalanche is, is bearing down on a couple of guys, one of whom is trying to uh, load his old giant arcade style video game into the back of his pickup truck because he wants to save it there's a third spot that takes place in a hospital that I, I won't even begin to try to describe um, but I really like these ads they're really well done they kind of hark back to kind of the Jerry Graff like old you know Skittles humor of like uh, 10 years ago or so and they're just perfectly paced and wonderfully shot and and they're some of the funniest weirdest ads I've seen in a long time so um, check them out. They're, uh, just search for Let Go on Adweek and you should find them. This is uh, honestly maybe my favorite campaign that's running right now in terms of ongoing. They don't put out so many spots in a year that you really get tired of them. Uh, but uh, there's a subtlety. You know, Tim mentioned the kind of the blase attitude of the characters that they are always almost indifferent. Like in the avalanche when there's literally an avalanche pouring down behind them, coming at them, and they just seem like they're in no rush at all. And that that attitude just makes, you know, g contrasting with the tension of whatever the scene. But my all time favorite is one with uh, two male spies. Y you know, they seem like these James Bond types. It's implied they're a gay couple. Uh, and the dialogue is just so fantastic. And while it helps to watch it, let's go ahead and listen to some of the dialogue from that one, because I really think it conveys the, the subtlety of the delivery and the copywriting here. Let's listen to uh, this one from, uh, I believe, about a year ago. Let it go. Why? 
When's the last time we grilled out? Maybe when work calms down. <sighs> Let's just sell it on let go. We just have to take a picture and post it. We are extremely interested in the barbecue. Sold. It's time to snap, post, chat, and sell. It's time to let go. So, yeah, great to see that campaign back. Uh, definitely check out uh, Adweek and uh, Tim's Adfreak blog uh, to catch up on these and more uh, ads worth watching. And now it's time to move on for our big discussion of the week. This week, it's our annual announcement of our media agencies of the year. Uh, we've invited Michael Berge, uh, who oversees this beast of a project every year, uh, in <laughs> which we select uh, a U.S. agency of the year, a global agency of the year, and this year, a breakthrough agency of the year. Why don't you yep. just start by telling us about the breakthrough agency? What were you looking for? This is a new category. What were you looking for in that, in that one? Well, we were definitely looking for uh, a media agency that was you know, that's kind of either labored for years and has just kind of gone under the radar. But then our radar got completely occluded by this giant thing called Hearts and Science, uh, a new Omnicom network that in the last year secured two of the largest advertisers, media budgets um, in the U.S., Procter & Gamble and AT&T. And because we couldn't see anything else on our radar, we had to go with Hearts and Science. Um, and, th you know, they're just this giant beast that came out of nowhere. I think they didn't exist until December 2015. And then, you know, again, gobbled up uh, between 3 and $5 billion worth of media spend in, uh, in the space of seven months. So that's why Hearts and Science got our nod for breakthrough. But ordinarily, we're looking for uh, other shops that usually fly a bit under the radar but are doing great work. So let's go ahead and uh, as a bit of a spoiler here. We'll go ahead and give out the, the winner. So tell us who won U.S. and global. Uh, U.S. winner this year was Havas Media. Um, and I can go into a little bit more of why we picked them. But our global uh, winner this year was uh, PhD Worldwide, which won largely on the merits of its uh, securing the global VW Group business. And uh, good old Katie wrote that story and did a great job. Thanks. <laughs> I did write that one. <laughs> yes, you did. Well, we'll definitely get Katie to tell us a little more about PhD in a minute. First, I want to go back to hearts and science. Just I, I always think this is fascinating. This is a model and a, and a reality that we see quite often, which is when uh, these huge accounts are on the line. Sometimes agencies uh, kind of basically say, if we win this, we will create a new agency uh, basically for this business. Is that kind of what was happening with hearts and science, that, that it was dependent on, on some of these wins coming through? Um, well, Hearts and Science was created around the the win of the lion's share of Procter and Gamble's North American business, so it's a little bit chicken and egg here, um, and and it was big enough that Omnicom, I think, for for both reasons of uh, you know needing to avoid a little bit of conflict with its other two media networks, uh, OMD and PhD, but also just by virtue of the size of PNG decided to create this third network. A lot of it is built on this very kind of strong data center that has been in operation for about five years uh, within the Omnicom Media Group called 
uh, Analect. And Scott Hagedorn, who had run Analect, was named CEO of Hearts and Science in part for that reason. So uh, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation here. How, how do you think they've handled I mean, that's a just obviously a, an immense amount of work to take on. Does it seem like they're handling the deluge of this new work and the, and the scaling that's required, or do they seem to be handling it all pretty well? I think they're handling it pretty well. I think one of their biggest problems at the outset was just being able to staff up for such large accounts. And I, I think it's no secret out in the industry that P&G and AT&T are two of the more kind of not so easy to handle clients. So I think that might have made the staffing a little bit more difficult, which is why we've seen more um, actual media results out of their work for P&G and less from their work so far with AT&T, which I think is still in kind of the, the formative stages, even though we're talking about, you know, six months ago. Well, definitely want to hear more about PhD. So, Katie, you wrote the profile on this, our, our global winner for Media Agency of the Year. Uh, tell us about uh, the wins that they had that really uh, kind of put them over the top. So this year, or 2016, they had something like $4 billion in um, new billings added from new business wins. And $3 billion of that came from the Volkswagen wins. So that was a huge, obviously a huge chunk of the business. Um, and that was the, the VW account was the largest consolidation in media history. Um, so that was definitely, I mean, I can't speak for, you know, why exactly they were chosen, but that kind of is one of the biggest reasons why they won that, that global title. Um, they also had some big wins in the U.S. They won Delta and Carnival. They also had some smaller ones like MailChimp, um, and then a couple of other kind of bigger global ones. And overall, they only lost, I think, one account out of Australia. So that's, I mean, in the media business where, you know, recently so much has been going up uh, for review, that's kind of an incredible thing that they have managed to add so much new business without really losing. Yeah, that's kind of eye-opening in this business. I mean, you just, it, it, it is so rare for a media agency group of that size to win that much business and not lose, not even, not a commensurate amount, but something close to that. It, it's pretty unprecedented, and it, and it made PhD kind of a slam dunk for us to pick. All, all of this does fall in the backdrop, as Katie mentioned, of what we, you know, the industry's been calling media palooza, uh, which is this just kind of seemingly endless flood of accounts coming into review. Bergie, for not to imply that everyone listening hasn't been following every single update in this highly complicated story over the last few years, <laughs> but can you give us kind of a, a you know, a 10-mile-up look at what is Media Palooza and what has, you know, what created this? Well, Media Palooza was, you know, kind of the, if you looked at a list of the top 20 uh, advertisers uh, by, by ad spend, I think like 10 of them were were up for media review in in the space, I guess, over calendar year 2015, but then it bled into 2016. And I think what, what brought it on was just a huge game of musical chairs among the CMOs of those advertisers. And I think it's widely regarded now that if you see a new CMO and a major uh, marketer 
you can safely expect that there's going to be a media review within six months. Um, I think the media agency world is doing its best, especially those the, the giant uh, groups that are out there are really doing their best to try to you know pivot and adapt to the rapidly changing world we live in these days. Some of them are faster than others. Um, but it's very easy for a new CMO to show immediate action by taking over uh, the marketing role at a company and, and, and launching a media review to say, look, I'm on the job. We're going we're gonna to make sure everything's happening the way it should. And I think that really precipitated a lot of it. Now, Tim has obviously been covering the creative industry uh, for, for a very long time. I, you know, I came up through creative coverage and worked at a creative agency. And I feel like we have a pretty good handle on if you're looking for a creative shop, here's what sets the winners apart. You know, they're quality of their creative the strategy of their creative with media i've i'm always a little more confused because it feels like a battle of spreadsheets you know it's like you are not alone <laughs> david you're not alone there's a lot of confusion out there so I, I mean i guess that's my question like katie on you know covering phd what do they attribute their success to i'm sure they have some very broad sweeping you know here's what makes us stand out from the crowd but but what do they feel are their their hooks for winning well, obviously, you know, the, the accounts that they win are a big part of that. Um, you know, with the VW account, for example, like they, you know, we talk about with some of the creative agencies with Agency of the Year, we talked about, you know, growth of the agency. So with the VW win, they had to add 500 new employees in the span of like six months or something. So they're, you know, growing at a really rapid rate. Um but they also do mention some of the strategy that they contribute to the creative agencies. So PhD, for example, really stressed this year that they had won four awards in Cannes where they were kind of the sole name on that piece of work. And they won something like 350 awards total, which was like the most out of any um, media agency. So they do put you know, some stress on the creative work that they do. But it's obviously more like, you know, the media planning strategy side of it. I mean, I think if I if I may interject here, I would I would add that, you know, most media agencies these days kind of definitely try to talk a big game of data and how they're, you know, interpreting data, uh, mas not massaging data, but understanding data and and filtering it through to the benefit of their clients. Um, I think that is a little bit more talk than actual action. Although in the in the instance of hearts and science, you know the existence of hearts and science being that it came from this analect base uh, has certainly spurred other hol holding companies uh, that that are in the media agency space to to react, um, such as WPP with its M platform. I know Martin Sorrell might not agree that it's a reaction, but it kind of was because it came after the creation of hearts and science. But to Katie's point, I think creative execution within the media space and given the fact that media companies are so much more willing to work with media agencies to create new executions for clients because everybody wants that money is really upping the creative game within the media space much more than I think we've seen in the last 20 years. The, the one we have not talked about is Havas. Uh, so Havas won our U.S. Media Agency of the Year. Uh, Michael, what can you tell us about uh, the year that Havas had? Well, Havas had a great year in part because of what their CEO, Yannick uh, Bollore, has really tried to execute, um, which is this village approach. They Basically, all the agencies owned by Havas on the creative and media side have basically tried to break down all the walls among them 
and share information wherever possible, which sounds like kind of a, a conflict nightmare for some clients. And those clients that weren't scared away seem to be benefiting greatly from it. And Havas Media, specifically in the U.S., had the good fortune of hiring Colin Kinsella as their CEO, I think, last April or May. And what they what they went for in terms of approach to winning clients is going for this kind of sweet middle spot of not the giant clients, the P&Gs and the AT&Ts that were kind of part of Media Palooza, but these mid-level clients. And they won TD Bank, Swarovski, Hallmark, Universal Music Group, that are all like mid-size accounts, anywhere from 60 million in media spend, maybe up to 150. And they got a ton of them. They had a real string of wins that is what kind of made them pop up on our radar. And that seems to be the winning approach for them, this village approach combined with targeting not the largest accounts out there. And they, they did very well. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining us to discuss that. De- there's so much more to talk about. These are very long and in-depth profiles, so I definitely encourage everyone to check out uh, adweek.com and look for just Media Agency of the Year. Shouldn't be too hard to find, and you can find our three profiles of our winners there. Uh, thank you to everyone at Adweek that put in lots of time and effort on uh, making that decision, deciding the winners, and uh, writing up those those profiles. I, I learned a lot. As always, I'm admittedly a bit... Uh, baffled by the media world, but I, I do love trying to learn more, so thank you for helping shed a light on that. Uh, we have an email from a listener this week, and I wanted to spend a little time uh, going over that. Her name is Crystal. Uh, she wrote in and said, uh, I love listening to the podcast while I work, so thank you, Crystal, for doing that. She says, uh, it's a great way to learn about the current trends uh, without having to devote hours to research, and you guys are awesome. Again, thank you, Crystal. Uh, But she says, as an advertising major, I want to grow with the field while I'm in school and make sure that I'm staying up to date on trends and techniques. Do you guys have any tips or advice that you would uh, give to a newcomer? Uh, So, Tim, let's start with you. What's your advice for someone who's kind of getting ready to graduate in the advertising field? Well, this is going to sound like an obvious answer, but um, just be exposed to as much of the work as possible. You know, like get, get involved in advertising Twitter and get involved, you know, with Adweek and and everything we cover. Um, Adweek chat every Wednesday is a great way to, this just sounds like an ad, but I I (laughs) Yeah, it's probably an Um, ad. It is probably an ad. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I feel like if you, if you just hang around those communities online that you're, you're going to be ahead of the game in terms of just knowing what's current and what's, what everyone's talking about. I mean, to me, it's a lot like getting into journalism, which is that the more effort you put in early into just kind of forcing your way through the door, we've covered a lot of the funny ways that people have pretended to be delivery people to get in the door of an agency or have sent their portfolio, you know, as a box of donuts. And just uh, there's a lot of different creative ways that people have gotten their foot in the door. But I think more important than the than the tactics themselves is just that philosophy of just being willing to do whatever and to, to pitch in wherever, uh, but not to just kind of say, I'll do whatever you want. I mean, it's really important to have your own view because agencies, you know, I believe, really want to hire people who, who bring something to the table, not someone to bring them coffee. You know, I, I think they, they are looking for, and especially the younger you are, we're, we are blessed to be in an industry where youth is an asset. You know, it's not a liability. And so I, I think, you know, people who come in, you can't be too cocky and entitled about it, but you certainly can come in knowing that you're bringing something to the conversation, your understanding of 
whether it's internet culture or of the you know trends that the older you get, the more veteran you get in these industries, the harder it is to keep up with all that. Uh, but uh, I've really enjoyed watching several of the international creatives I've seen who, uh, you know, they basically travel around to wherever the work is needed. They jump on any opportunity they can. They are kind of tireless about creating ideas and pushing them out there, even if they don't have a client, even if they don't have, you know, they're just constantly making things. And I think that reputation, uh, once you build a site where here's all the cool ideas I have, I haven't sold them to anybody, but they were my ideas. Uh, I think those people, I've been following uh, people like that for several years, and they have all done very well for themselves uh, because they've put in that effort instead of just sitting on their hands and waiting for someone to throw a job at them. Uh, Katie, what, w- what advice would you give? I think it sounds like she's doing all the right things so far, you know, just by tuning into what's going on in the industry. But I would say, um, you know, one of the pieces of advice I got when I was looking for a job although it was journalism, um, was to one, kind of look into the people that have graduated from your college and that are in the field that you're interested in and send them an email, ask them if they can spend a couple minutes on the phone with you or grab coffee if you're in the same city. Um, But also just like find people that you admire in the industry and, you know, maybe follow them on Twitter, try and track down their email, see if you can get them for a couple minutes and ask them a question or two and just have a conversation and see what you can learn from them because the more I think the more you can learn from the people that are in the industry that have been doing this for a long time and then you know taking that and learning from them is kind of one of the best ways to to prepare yourself. Michael Berge any uh, advice for aspiring advertising grads? Uh, Really cliched and obvious but uh, be fearless. I I think of um, that student made Adidas ad that that made the rounds just like in the last month or so and how amazing that ad was and Adidas didn't commission it as far as I know and correct me if I'm wrong on this Tim or David but I mean that that was made by a student like that was mind-boggling so I would say be fearless and create 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 and uh, opportunities should should come your way yeah I had a really interesting conversation with David Kolbush who's the uh, Droga 5 London CCO couple months ago and he was talking about everyone who works at Drogo 5 London is there because they had you know some kind of crazy project of personal project they were working on so I would echo what David said about personal projects and you know you're not going to necessarily be creatively fulfilled by every um, you know by by trying to do client work or even putting together a portfolio with you know spec ads for clients just find something that you actually want to do in the real world that's that you're passionate about and that will show your your creative chops um, when you go to put your portfolio together. Well, thank you guys for the advice. Hopefully that helps, Crystal. And thank you for listening. You can email us uh, if you'd like to. Uh, hear your own question here on the podcast or just uh, ask us a question privately. We're at podcast at adweek.com. It's podcast at adweek.com. Or you can hit us on Twitter where we are at adweek. Uh, our theme music is by Home. Uh, this week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please, if you have not left a rating or a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, it just takes a second. You don't even have to use uh, write a full, full-length full review. You can just give us uh, whatever star rating you think is fair, and uh, we would appreciate that. That helps new listeners discover the podcast. Uh, we've got quite a few things coming up soon. We've got our mobile issue. We've got our Agencies 3.0 uh, kind of list of some of the cooler uh, new agencies that are uh, bucking the model, the traditional model of agencies. Uh, we've got so much more uh, coming up. We've got a very busy few months ahead. So definitely keep tuning into the podcast. Keep an eye on adweek.com. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. Thanks, everybody.
Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.